We're going to invite you to take your seats at this time. Well, we invite up our morning's storyteller. Storytelling is something we do here at Evergreen, if maybe you're new here. It's a time when members of you, members of a congregation, get to come up and share a little bit about themselves and their story. And today we get to hear from Joseph Moriarty. So Joseph, would you come on up now and share your story with us? I was blessed to be able to share my testimony last spring, and that talked about uh, restoration and rescuing by the Lord in 2002. But today I'm going to share a little bit about answered prayer and being in a position to be used by the Lord. Several days prior to Christmas 2018, I drove from Capitol Hill to Ballard to buy a special brand of ham. After 20 minutes in the store, I exited and headed for my car. I had about 90 minutes to spare before a coffee meeting. So I started praying and was immediately inspired to drive to Golden Gardens. Two words popped into my mind, Golden Gardens. Surprisingly, just a few people were walking the beach. It was about 50 degrees with parkly cloudy skies, a rarity for December. As I was walking near the shoreline, I stumbled across a Southeast Asian man gazing out on the water. He was wearing sandals and drinking coffee from a paper cup. While walking by, I greeted him with a hello and made a quick comment about the mild of the weather. He responded, yes, the Creator has blessed us today. I stopped, pivoted around, looked at him in the eyes and asked him if he walked the beach often. He said, I used to every day, but only do so once in a while now. I asked, what's changed? Well, my golden retriever is no longer available to walk with me. I could tell that he had been very attached to his dog. I introduced myself. My name is Joseph. What's yours? He replied, you can call me by my nickname, B. He then asked, are you a Christian? I replied, yes, I am, and then briefly shared how the Lord rescued me from a lifestyle of alcohol abuse, how he healed my heart and restored my soul. B then asked me if I had time to listen to a reoccurring dream he had been wrestling with. He then began to describe the dream. In this dream, I'm walking with my dog here at the beach, like I had done most days. But on this morning, the golden retriever ran far ahead of our normal routine and suddenly vanished. I frantically looked everywhere for my dog, which seemed like hours, but failed to find him. Dejected and exhausted, I finally headed home alone. I remember crying myself to sleep in this dream because I loved this dog more than anything else. Still in the dream, I returned to the beach the next morning only to find my golden retriever being used as a work dog. My retriever was struggling with trying to drag cut trees around the park. Then his work supervisor started acting very cruel to my dog. Each time he felt the golden retriever wasn't pulling the load fast enough. I pleaded with this work supervisor to return my dog to me, but the wicked man refused even to listen and attempted to drive me away from the park. Suddenly, I woke up from this troubling dream with actual tears streaming down my face. B then described what he thought the dream symbolized. He believes the roles of those depicted 
or that of Jesus, the dog owner, be the golden retriever and the wicked supervisor, Satan, because like the golden retriever, B had ran ahead of his master, Jesus, had been spiritually captured and put to work by the cruel work supervisor, Satan. He then explained how he had become angry with God for not healing his golden retriever of cancer. He then said that he turned his back on God after his dog died and started self-medicating with alcohol consumption and participating in risky behavior. B then asked me, do you think Jesus would want me back? Even, even though I had become angry and turned away from him, I said, tell me, B, who's filling your mind with these thoughts? He said that Satan had been barding his thoughts daily, that he wasn't worthy enough to turn back to Christ. And that shortly after Thanksgiving, he boldly asked Jesus in prayer to show him that he wanted him back by sending a Christian man to him before Christmas, or he had likely give up trying to reconnect with him. I then asked B, well, exactly what does the Word of God say in this? He then became emotional about our meeting and asked me to pray with him for a restored relationship with Jesus. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit could I contain my composure and then immediately shared three scriptures from the New Testament. The first, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The second, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And the third, a man's heart plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. We then prayed together, thank Jesus for directing our steps that morning and providing us his word to firmly stand upon when we need both wisdom and truth. This morning's scripture is from the book of Ephesians. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading from verses 11 through 13 from chapter 4 in the New International Version. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The word of the Lord. I really appreciate the uh, tradition of storytelling that I've just observed in my first uh, six weeks with you. And uh, as many of the stories are told, it's like, just give the benediction and we all go home, right? We got our, got our word. Or today, I could just say, you don't need to hear what I'm saying. Let's all go to a park somewhere and be prayerful about the folks that are wandering around. Uh, you know, as a pastor, I rarely am wandering around on Sunday mornings other than in church buildings. 
but I am intrigued to know what folks outside of church do on Sundays. And uh, Joseph, thank you for giving us uh, a good picture of being sensitive, no matter where we are, to the Holy Spirit. Well, we are going to continue in a sermon series that I introduced last week, uh, really utilizing the vision statement of our denomination, because I don't think there's any more concise vision statement than what you find at the Evangelical Covenant National website and on a lot of our materials. Deeper in Christ and further in our mission, really paralleling the two great commandments, to love God and love our neighbor. And last week, we focused on deeper in Christ. We talked about the simple fact that many times we replace what is at the center of our life, which is supposed to be Christ. And the normal Christian life is constantly taking those things that we need to do in this life and putting them in the center, in place of Christ. So it's not like that is uh, an aberration, that's a normative thing, but the discipline of the follower of Jesus is to find ways that Jesus can be put back in his rightful place. And this whole series is about what I'm calling fundamentals. Fundamentals that any athlete would go through, any musician would go through. Uh, Throughout our life, when we lose our way or we're just needing to realign ourselves and recalibrate, We go back to those things from our past that we know to be true. And the Christian life is very much like that. And I said last week that often we as followers of Jesus need more reminders than we need new things. One of the challenges of modern life in the West is we have an endless supply of new knowledge especially through the internet and our technological advances, we can find something new every day. How many of you have gone down the rabbit hole of a website or Facebook just because there's something that grabs your attention and we find ourselves looking at our watch 30 minutes later like I totally lost track because I was looking for something new. That is not the Christian life. We go back to our fundamentals And the newness comes when the Holy Spirit inspires those fundamentals and gives us a brand new way to apply those things. So today, we're going to take a little bit different turn. Put up the next graphic if you would. Obviously, this church is beginning the process of looking for a new permanent pastor. Uh, My role as interim is to come alongside this church, obviously work with the pastoral staff, but also to work with the lead team as they begin this very important process of looking for the next permanent pastor. And so there's a lot of pragmatic things that come along with that in terms of developing a search committee and a lot of these things you're gonna be hearing about. But I really want to begin uh, this new year by saying that my role, I really wanna keep us focused on the biblical foundations of spiritual leadership. The church is a unique entity in the world. There is nothing like it. There are good principles that we can gain from business and nonprofit agencies and all kinds of ways to help us, but the bottom line is this is spiritual work and it is something that our Lord Jesus established, this thing that we call the church. 
So I want you to all close your eyes for just a moment because I'm going to let you play your own tape in your brain. What do you think of when I say the word pastor? What comes to mind when I say the word pastor? Is it a favorite pastor of yours from the past? Is it a pastor that you presently look up to? Is that individual a preacher primarily? Were they a caring shepherd? Were they an evangelist? Were they charismatic? Were they quiet and gentle in their spirit? Okay, you can open your eyes if you close them. I want you to keep that individual or those individuals in your mind because none of us is completely unbiased when we talk about this process. One of the other interesting things about our own covenant churches is we are congregational in our form of government. In other words, the power of choosing the pastor lies with us as members of this church. Very different from top-down church structures where a bishop appoints a pastor for a church. It comes from within our own membership. And so we bring our biases. We bring our own opinions. We bring our own desires. Maybe our favorite podcast preacher that we listen to, our favorite worship leader, our favorite church that we've heard about in another town that we respect, all of those things influence this process. And I would add one other question in this day and age. What are the unique needs of Evergreen as we find ourselves sitting right in the middle of a lake between two globally impacting cities on either side of us and layer it that we are in the Pacific Northwest, which has its own culture. And Seattle and Bellevue have their own distinct cultures. We could go on and on in terms of the uniqueness of the profile of what this church might be looking for. But I'm gonna bring us back to somebody you're already hearing a lot about because he's my hero as a pastor. And he's the one who has shaped my understanding more than any other. If you put up the next graphic, Eugene Peterson wrote his memoir in 2012, and he simply called it The Pastor. I've told you I was fortunate to have Eugene as a professor in my seminary studies at Regent. I would have titled this book Brainiac, or Really Smart Guy, or Guy That Speaks Multiple Languages, Greek and Hebrew. This guy was brilliant. He died a few years ago. But at the end of his life, when he wrote his memoir, The True Heart of Eugene Peterson came out, and he simply titled his book, The Pastor. Here's one quote. When I look for help in developing my pastoral craft and nurturing my pastoral vocation, the one century that has the least to commend is the 20th century. Has any century ever been so fascinated with gimmicks, so filled with fads, so unaware of God, and so out of touch with the underground spiritual streams which water eternal life? Eugene just puts it in so many concise and real terms. And so don't 
broad sweep the whole book on that basis. He was simply admitting he gained a lot from psychologists and management consultants and sociologists and business leaders in his ministry. But he was desirous of a biblical model so that he would not be swayed by organizational practices and practical things that people would want out of their pastor. So that's where we're going this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father, you know the heart of this church and its leadership and their desire to follow the Holy Spirit in this upcoming pastoral search. And on this Sunday of January, we pause to ask you to use your word this morning to give us the guidance and lay a framework for us that will benefit all of us as we move forward following you. In Christ's name, amen. The scripture, go ahead and put up Ephesians 4.11, first of all. This uh, is really the grounding for me and for most pastors in terms of what is the role. It is Paul's instruction, obviously, to a group of people, perhaps in Ephesus, but also perhaps through Asia Minor. And Paul lays out this grand and epic understanding of the church of Jesus. Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And I'm not going to dig deep into this text today. I'm really just throwing it out to you. We're, we're giving you a framework today because I'm going to revisit some of these ideas and we'll go deeper in it. But I just simply want to note this morning that there are a variety of gifts that God gives to his church to lead it. In the big picture, there are folks who are visionaries. Paul was certainly that. In the big picture, we also see pastors who are very much one-on-one, -on -one, and they love the caring and shepherding side and coming alongside people. We see those that want to reach non-believers, the evangelists. We see those that are great teachers. And I always say it this way, we only need a few teachers in any given congregation. Otherwise, nobody would be listening. But truly gifted teachers are those who don't just love to be up front and talk. They are those who put it out and take people all the way to application. And so the big idea is that it was Christ himself who ordained his church. And he would also gift men and women to be able to lead it in a variety of ways. Verse 12, what's the purpose of all of this leadership? And this is key, because we always struggle with this. The good spiritual leader equips people for works of service. Now, we recognize a lot of charismatic individuals who we love to listen to them and have them lead us in worship and see their public ministry, but that is not what Paul was looking for. That was far away. They didn't believe that the church was going to exist past their lifetime. If you read the New Testament documents, they believed Jesus was going to return within their own lifetime. They weren't looking to establish some structure that would last for 2,000 years like we do today. They weren't thinking in terms of hierarchy and budgets and pastoral succession. They were simply thinking about 
spiritual leaders who would equip people for works of service in their generation. Jesus would come back, and that was it. And I love that freshness because that helps me as I try and navigate these waters 2,000 years later. The main role was discipleship. What I look for in young leaders is do they have the ability to give away what they've been given? It's a wonderful treasure and gift that God gives to young people, that they have the ability to stand up on a stage like this and lead and worship and teach. But the question isn't how long can they do that as the sole person up front who's a charismatic, and I would use a baseball term, five-tool pastor. The key is, can they give away and equip someone else to do what they do? And then finally, Paul, I believe, concludes this. The goal is building up the body of Christ. And talk about an audacious goal. Until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I almost want to give up. Through my church experience, most of the congregations I've served are a far cry from that because none of this will be accomplished this side of eternity. However, we have a taste of it now. In those moments when we have knowledge of Jesus, when we sense maturity and we're growing up in Christ, and we attain to just a small fragment of what we believe the fullness of Christ means in the church of Christ gathered, those are precious moments, and that's what keeps me going. Otherwise, I would have unplugged a long time ago. One of the great things, uh, too, that Eugene has given to the Western church especially is a book called Five Smooth Stones of Pastoral Work. The first lead team meeting that I attended at Evergreen last month, I presented a quick overview of this to the leadership team because I wanted them to know the basis for where I was going to be leading in my comments about what the church should be looking for biblically. This book was published in 1980. Eugene planted his first church in 1964, and I, I was mentioning to Donna earlier this week that Bud Palmberg, her husband and long-beloved pastor of this church, and Eugene were really contemporaries. They were seeing through the 60s and 70s the demise of most of the mainline denominations that we have in America. They were already in decline, and what we've seen today in the splintering of many of those mainlines was really showing itself in the 60s and 70s. At the same time, Eugene was observing a rise in highly specialized ministries, effective ministries, churches that were growing beyond 500 to 600 people, which were the large churches when I was growing up in the 50s, and growing past 1,000 past 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 now that we acknowledge our churches, especially in America. Phenomenal changes. And he was watching that. And again, he was appreciating what was positive, but Peterson, without knowing it by writing this book, was prophetic in 1980, 40 years ago. Think about that. 
And I believe this book is prophetic today. To the young pastors that I have the privilege to mentor, I'm giving them this book because I believe it is prophetic today. And so Eugene was not wanting to get caught in the trap and the downside of being a pastoral professional. And so he came up with five things, and he calls them smooth stones. His analogy is actually, and only Eugene does this, he takes these poetic things, his brain just works differently in a good way. And he takes the image, or the story rather, of David, this young boy who was being sent out to fight Goliath. And if you know that story, what was the first plan of attack with this young spiritual leader? Put him in Saul's armor, this armor that was oversized for this little boy, and let's let him go out and fight Goliath the way a real soldier does. We'll give him the highest of technology, a breastplate, a helmet, a sword. And what does the Spirit of God say? Don't rely on the externals. Don't rely on those things that the human mind would say are important. And so what does David do? He goes down to the creek and he finds five stones that have been rubbed smooth by the currents of the river. And Eugene's point is, these five stones that I'm going to just give you from his book are those consistent markers of what a spiritual leader has always done, both in the Old Testament that we call the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, but also now in Christ's church. So we're going to fly through these because I'm not going to reference a lot of them today. This is, again, intended to be a framework for us going forward. Well, the first one that Peterson gives us is he calls it the pastoral work of story-making. What he means by that is we are finding our place in God's salvation story. The, the reason we teach the scriptures is because pastors and teachers have the ability to give that overview of what in the world has God done throughout history. And the Bible is really God's salvation story in a word. It is the way that he saved initially his people, Israel, and then, as we know, the Christian church. And so pastors are really historians. We're not telling anything new. We get to retell a story that describes various accounts of God revealing who he is as a person and how he has interacted with humanity. One of the great texts I love on this is on the road to Emmaus. You remember there were two individuals that are walking with Jesus. This is after his resurrection, and they're having this conversation, and they, they say, didn't you hear about this Messiah that was killed, this Jesus that was killed? And they don't know who Jesus is. He's incognito. But beginning with Moses and the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So he's going back into the Hebrew scriptures and he's opening their eyes to the fact, you're walking with the guy. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? 
Throughout church history, that is the common response to someone who has had their spirit and soul enlivened because they begun to consider this salvation story and more importantly, where they might fit in it. Their hearts are strangely warmed and they burn within us. And so pastors not only proclaim the story as historians, but we have the privilege to help people understand where they fit And we would call that their personal salvation, where they fit then being baptized into that body and where they fit in terms of the ongoing relationship with Christ. Number two, the second smooth stone, is pastors have the privilege to work in community building, learning to live as people of the Holy Spirit. The church is not a social organization the way we have so many fraternal organizations and wonderful you know, uh, clubs that are built around hobbies or interests. And yet, community is certainly at the core of what gathers us together as the people of God. And so pastors help build when the church is gathered, like this morning and any time that we would meet during the week. We work to grow a healthy community of, in our social interactions. But again, it isn't just trying to get along with people that we may not have interests. It is trusting that we are people of the Holy Spirit and that is the core of what brings us together. As I said earlier, there is no entity on this planet that is based on the glue of the Holy Spirit bringing people together. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Paul was speaking to a different church, and he uses a huge, uh, wonderful illustration. Don't you know you are like the temple in Jerusalem, the place of worship for any Orthodox Jew that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? He is changing their idea of where God lives. He doesn't just dwell in this temple made by hands but now he dwells in them as individuals and he dwells in them when they are together. Radical ideas. And so pastors have the ability to build community. And as I said, this isn't just a social activity. Although we work at that, we gave an example, Joseph gave an example of community building this morning. The membership class that Julie and I will lead, that's to build Holy Spirit-directed community. The small groups that you can sign up for represent that. Even something as benign as a potluck is exactly the same thing. This is good pastoral work as the Holy Spirit is at the core. The third smooth stone is a wonderful one the pastoral work of prayer directing. Such a huge topic, this idea of what prayer is. I like to use a Latin term, quorum Deo, because it encompasses the fact that all of life is intended to be lived in God's presence. It's a wonderful term if you're not familiar with it. We live in the presence of God. We live under his authority and we live to his honor and his glory. That is the broad sweep idea of what it means to pray. 
Luke chapter 11. This is the basis for what we call the Lord's Prayer. Jesus had these men who had followed him, and they come to him, and they say, while Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he was done, one of the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. What in the world are you doing when you bow your head and kneel or whatever Jesus did in his posture? Just as John the Baptist taught his disciples, they'd seen these two people they respected praying. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say. And that's when we corporately lead into the Lord's Prayer. Well, that was not intended to be a rote, memorized prayer, even though that's important and it's necessary and a great part of our worship. If you look, if you've, you've heard, I'm sure, many sermons on the Lord's Prayer, it's a framework for how to live quorum Deo in the presence of God. And so Jesus was doing good pastoral work, not standing up and saying, listen to my wonderful prayers. They are theologically sound and they're inspiring. Pastors should be able to lead people in appropriate public prayer. But this is something I've never seen on a pastoral search description of what they're looking for. Pastor, can you teach us how to pray? And I would commend to you that's an important piece of pastoral work. The next one, the fourth one, is the pastoral work of nay saying. A phrase we don't often use in today's culture, but it taken from Robert's Rules of Order. All in favor, say? Aye. Aye. All opposed? Nay. nay. Oh, those naysayers over here. That's what Eugene is drawing on. Well, what's he saying? He's saying that the scriptures in their very core speak about paths that are wayward from Christ. The book of Ecclesiastes is the number one bestseller of naysaying because it has all kinds of wise warnings about what happens on wayward paths and what the Bible calls folly. There are ways that people follow that are folly. They're foolish. They're destructive. And so Eugene says this is another pastoral privilege. I look to Mark chapter 8 as one place, the summary statement of Jesus, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But if you lose your life for me and for the gospel, you'll save it. And this wonderful sentence, what good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? That is wisdom trying to keep people from going down the wrong road towards folly. Peterson said, that we should read from the book of Ecclesiastes before we open the Bible to any other passage and have something to recalibrate our brain around this idea that there is a way that seems right unto a man, but its end is death. Then read your passage and then go out and respond and do it. The final smooth stone is the pastoral work of pain sharing. And this is unique also to pastoral and work in the church. We are not triumphant, as I said last week. We are those who follow the sacrificial way that leads to death that Jesus gave us. And so pain sharing means that the prophets of the Old Testament didn't just go out into the desert and lob 
their prophecies into Jerusalem and to the Jewish cities. They lived among the people and they lamented the waywardness of their own people because they were sharing in the pain of that. And pastors do that within the church and we share the pain of our communities and the things that we see around us. We are not aloof. We enter into the human experience. And the book of Lamentations, as many of you know, was written by the prophet Jeremiah. This is the only hopeful verse in the entirety of the book. It's all lament, which is okay. Don't stay away from Lamentations because it's a downer. But this is the bright spot. I remember my affliction, my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. But, next uh, graphic, I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. His compassions, they never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That is walking with people in all levels of pain and discouragement and suffering, pointing them back to God as their only source of healing and hope. In that sense, pastors are spiritual directors, not giving the easy answer to what they're facing, but being willing to jump into their life, share the pain, and point them to a way of true hope. Well, as we close today, again, this is just a quick framework, and I will be referring back to these five smooth stones because I believe that they are foundational to the practical stuff that we will talk about in looking for a new pastor. But we need to stay true to these fundamentals. And this morning, I also wanted to uh, invite uh, our pastoral staff, and so I'm going to invite uh, Julie to come forward, and Katie, and Elise, I hope, has been able to come back from the children. If, if not, would someone go fetch her? Is she here? There she is. Okay. Um, the reason, and I'm not excluding our support staff because we have a wonderful group of folks that serve to support us too, but I didn't want to presume upon them to be in both services today. So your pastoral staff are, are standing in front of you, and I'd also like to invite uh, any of the leadership team that are here today to stand with them. When I got here the 1st of December, I began to think about uh, doing this because I soon learned that this is really the core group of people who have directed this church, especially through the summer, through the fall, to get us to this point. They have done good ministry. They have been faithful to their calling and their responsibility to be spiritual leaders here. And first of all, I would like you to just offer your appreciation to them for their good work to get us here. <clears throat> And the dual purpose of this this morning is I take very seriously the um, authority, if you will, the spiritual authority that this group has to set the four of us and our support staff for this season of ministry. I will be with you for a shorter period of time, but it doesn't mean that I'm some voice that comes from the far north and comes in here on Sunday morning, does my thing, and then I leave. 
I've tried to convey to you in these early weeks that I am embedded into the family of this church. And so I would like uh, this morning, Susan's going to pray, but I'd like to have the lead team lay hands on us to set us apart for this season of ministry. Father, thank you for the group of pastors that you have given us for these beautiful souls. Thank you, first of all, for their commitment to you and for the commitment to this body and to the strengthening and building up of your church. Lord, they have beautiful gifts, and I think first of Katie's heart of worship, where she leads us into your presence in a deeper and deeper way. I thank you for Elisa's authentic faith, where she leads us to a deeper knowledge and understanding of your love and truth. I thank you for Julie's heart of compassion. She celebrates Amen. with us in our joys, and she comforts us and sympathizes with us in our suffering. I also thank you for the life she has led, where she has walked closely with you and has gleaned much wisdom that she can share with us about godly living. And I thank you, too, for our new pastor, Paul, who is our pastor coach and um, listens very intently and with his heart. Um, it really makes you feel special talking to him and then um, just exhibits the concern of Christ, I would say, and um, provides encouragement. Lord God, you have blessed us immensely, and I pray that you would continue to bind our staff together in the power of your Holy Spirit so that they can do your work, they can walk in strength, that they can walk in love and truth and mercy and in your grace. We pray blessing on them. We, I pray that this congregation would lift them up and honor them, treat them with respect and kindness, and um, help to lighten the burden of the work that they've been given to do. And um, Lord, over all of this, we ask for a new understanding of your love and that that knowledge will fill us all up and especially these four, to the fullness of you. In Jesus' name, amen.